Welcome to the Who Cares podcast brought to you by the College of Behavioral and Social Sciences and the College of Education at Georgia Southern University. Welcome back to Who Cares, casual conversations with Southern scholars. Today, Ryan and I are pleased to bring you Dr. Liz Sargent, who is a lecturer in our biology department at the, in the College of Science and Mathematics at Georgia Southern University. And Liz has the unique skill of studying microplastics in phytoplankton. So I understand microplastics. What are phytoplankton? So phytoplankton are, in my opinion, the coolest living organisms on this planet. And unfortunately, one of the least known, uh, I think, because they're microscopic and you don't see them with the naked eye. Um, if you kind of think about terrestrial land, um, the bottom of the food web would be our plants, our trees, our grasses, things like that. If you go into the ocean, the bottom of the food web is these, these phytoplankton. And they do a similar job to the plants on land in that they do photosynthesis. So they're taking carbon dioxide out of the water, combining that with um, water in the presence of sunlight to create you know, glucose and oxygen as, as a byproduct. And then they accumulate that in their own tissues and they become the food of you know, tiny things in the ocean, which then eat those tiny things, which then eat bigger things, and so on and so forth all the way up. Um, and if you kind of think about you know, the air that you breathe, Every other breath that you take can be attributed to the oxygen produced by those phytoplankton. So they do about 50% of all photosynthesis on Earth. Um, and in addition to just being you know, really important biogeochemically, they're also really beautiful. So if you were to you know, drag a net through the water and concentrate these and then pop them under a microscope, they are just amazing. There are some that live in little glass houses. There are some that make their own little external skeletons out of calcium carbonate or chalk and these super intricate sort of disks. There are um, dinoflagellates, which can be responsible for things like red tide, if you've ever heard of that mm -hmm. in, in Florida. Um, there are cyanobacteria, all sorts, but just millions and millions of these little tiny organisms in the ocean Super, super cool, super important. So when you say they're, they're I'm harping on the glass houses here, mm -hmm. like so there's this whole community, like a whole different ecosystem that's just not visible to the naked eye. And is it in all water or just primarily all ocean water? All water. So I specifically am a biological oceanographer. I study the phytoplankton in the oceans, but there are also phytoplankton in our ponds and rivers and streams and freshwater as well. Okay, so how are they building how are they building these little exoskeletons and what is that made out of? Yeah, so depending on the species, the um, diatoms are a group of phytoplankton that build these external, um, we call them tests, out of glass or silica. Um, and they just use you know, cellular processes to produce this material outside of them, almost like in a petri dish shape. So you can imagine the cell itself is inside of a tiny little glass cup on the bottom and a larger glass cup on top, which kind of contains the, the cell inside. And then when the cell inside divides, each new cell takes half of the original glass case and grows a new half. So every time they divide, they're creating an extra sort of glass protection. Hmm. Um, the coccolithophores, those are the ones who make these beautiful um, oval-shaped calcium carbonate um, coccoliths, and then they cover themselves in these disks of, of chalk through similar cellular processes to convert materials that they get in the water into this physical external structure. That's really cool. And does the external structure last when the plankton dies? Yes. And this is what's really cool about them, is you can use that material to um, kind of figure out where they lived in the past. Um, and when they, you can think about when they're sort of floating in the surface ocean because they need access to sunlight, 
for photosynthesis. They're happy up there getting their light, but when they die, they sink down, 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 down. So does their, you know, external material. And then like the constant rain of this material onto the seafloor can accumulate over time, you know, layer over layer. We call it marine snow, actually. Um, and I don't know if you're familiar with the White Cliffs of Dover yes. in, in the UK. The White Cliffs of Dover is made up of the uh, chalk on the outside of these coccolithophores. So if you were to break that up and put it under a microscope, you would see this kind of external calcium carbonate coccolith structure that these ancient phytoplankton created. Oh, that's really cool. All right, so, so we know that, that phytoplankton exists. Uh, and we, we know what it does, and we know that it plays this really important role. And so is, is one of the goals to increase the amount of phytoplankton in our waters? Yeah, so that's actually a pretty hot topic of research in the last decade or so, or maybe even longer, really, as we think about you know, climate change and a warming planet um, and drawdown of carbon dioxide. When any plant does photosynthesis, it's using carbon dioxide to do that. And the ocean is a huge reservoir of carbon dioxide. Um, Phytoplankton are taking carbon dioxide out of the water and converting it into an organic form that then stays in their bodies and sinks with their bodies when they die. So theoretically, if we could increase the rate of photosynthesis, we could increase the rate of drawdown of CO2 from the atmosphere. Um, there is some research going on in um, geoengineering to try to um, cause increases in photosynthesis, like for fertilizing the ocean. Um, there are huge swaths of the ocean where there's not a lot of phytoplankton because there's not enough nutrients for those phytoplankton to grow. Mm. And so if we were to add those nutrients, we could cause phytoplankton growth, we could cause more photosynthesis, more CO2 drawdown. So, so that's my next question really is, uh, if, if we know that it's there, we know that it's important, we want more of it, uh, what are some risks to mm. having it go away? Good question. Yeah, so uh, the risks to the geoengineering side of things is like just the scalability. You know, ocean covers 70% of our planet. And so if we wanted to lay fertilizer over the oceans, we'd have to put a lot of time and money and fossil fuels into harvesting those fertilizers, transporting those fertilizers, deploying those fertilizers. So in terms of a carbon balance, it doesn't really work out right now. Hmm. There's also some risks to the disrupting the ecosystem. If we were to, you know, cause such a huge flux at the bottom, there are some knock-on effects that could, you know, come from that. So it's um, not a scalable thing that I think will happen right now. But in the other direction, there's also some research to suggest that as the planet warms, um, we will expect to see lower levels of phytoplankton into the future. And so lower levels of photosynthesis, less drawdown of CO2. Um, so it's a really sort of delicate dance right now. So, so global warming poses a risk to phytoplankton, mm -hmm. but phytoplankton could be a key in helping to mitigate right. global warming. Exactly, yeah, and you hear a lot about that on land as well, like reforestation can be an effort to increase the number of trees, which increases photosynthesis, which increases carbon dioxide drawdown, or decreases CO2 in the atmosphere, so similar in the ocean. If we can maintain or increase the phytoplankton stores, then we can maintain or increase carbon dioxide being taken out of the air. Interesting. So how do the microplastics affect these little tiny creatures? Yeah, so the microplastics was like not even on my radar for a really long time. Um, I was trained in open ocean, so I was, you know, doing work way out in the middle of the Atlantic or the middle of the Gulf of Mexico. And when I would take my samples, um, I would just get water and plankton. Like it was just water and organic material. Um, I then took those same methods here to the Georgia coast when I moved down this way a few years ago. And I would run my nets through the water and I would get plankton and I would get water, but I would also get like loads of sediment debris from the, the marshes, some you know actual marsh grass, and then lots and lots and lots of this material that when I first saw it, I didn't know what it was. Um, and it turned out that that was plastics. And it was a mixture of things like 
plastic shards, plastic beads, um, and plastic fibers. And we realized that like, okay, this is really, really abundant along our coasts. So our first question was, you know, where, where is it coming from? How much of it is there? And is this, you know, a problem along the whole coast or just in this area? Um, and so once we started to get some constraints on those questions, we were able to then start thinking about, okay, what is the relationship between the plankton and the plastic? Um, the plastics are about the same size as the phytoplankton. And so the phytoplankton and the plastics themselves don't have too much of a, you know, involvement with each other. But if we go one level up on the food chain, the zooplankton, which are animals that are plankton, they eat phytoplankton and they can also eat plastics mm. because, you know, same size, similar shapes. And so once we kind of go up and up the food web, we start to see these plastics accumulating in heterotrophs or organisms that eat other organisms. And so we're seeing some knock-on impacts there. So did we figure out where these are coming from? Where primarily are these microplastics coming from? Because I think, you know, as I'm thinking about plastics in the ocean, I'm seeing large plastic bottles or, you know, a, a plastic beach chair or something laying around. Um, does that stuff break down and turn into those microplastics? Yeah, really good question. So, um, like I mentioned, there's three types of, of microplastics. And I guess first we should define what a microplastic is. Um, you're describing, you know, ocean pollutant plastic, mm -hmm. like large things that you can see, that you see washed up on the beach. A microplastic is anything that is um, half a centimeter or smaller. And that can come directly from the breakdown of like the plastic bottles that you see getting into the water. Because if those, you know, stay in there long enough, the sun's UV rays can deteriorate that plastic and cause it to, to break into shards. Um, it can also come from, it's now banned in the US, but you know, 10 years ago or so, all of the exfoliation products that we had mm -hmm. for skincare or for toothpaste had literal plastic beads in there that would then move out with wastewater into our waterways. Um, but the biggest contributor that we're seeing right now and what we're counting the most in the Georgia coastal waters are microfibers. And those come from clothing mostly or fabrics that are made not from organic materials. So things like um, fleece is, is a big one. Things like polyester, all of that is going to shed these little fibers that are made of plastic. So, you know, yeah. um, so the clothes that we wear, <clears throat> and we, we put them in the washing machine and the washing machine expels the water and in that water there are plastic fibers yes yeah and that is ending up in the ocean mm -hmm. which then is becoming part of our food chain yes and wow. like so we're I eating our clothing <laughs> i mean pretty much Yikes. yeah but all, we're also breathing our clothing like if you just look at the dust floating in the air a lot of that can be fibers from, from coming off clothes. Like if whatever you're wearing right now, if you were to kind of rub it, you probably see a little bit of fiber come off of that. And that is one way that clothes can shed fibers. But the main way, like you mentioned, is in the washing machine. And so every single load of laundry that we do, we're agitating those clothes, we're breaking off extra fibers. And then when the washing machine drains, that hose is gonna go out into the wastewater pathway. And wastewater is treated, but it's not treated in a way that removes all of those microplastics before it's then pumped back out into our streams and our rivers, which then eventually make their way to our coast. Um, so one thing that I do at home is on the actual sort of um, where the water exits the washing machine, I have a just a piece of nylon stocking that I put over that hose, and it acts as a filter that can then collect these fibers that are coming off the clothes. Um, I used to, before I had pets, I would change that about once a month. Now that I have pets, I change it about once a week. But it's just a little thing that I can do to reduce the amount of material that's coming out of my particular wastewater stream. 
That's a that's a great idea. I'm gonna I'm gonna do that at home. Yes. Um. So what's the implication uh, in in your line of uh, research for these microplastics ending up in the ocean? What's the what's the impact on on the human population? So there have been uh, minimal studies so far on the like direct impact between microplastics and, and human health. We have detected microplastics in human feces, so we know that like people are ingesting them, that they are making their way through our digestive systems. And we have found microplastics in the tissues of fish that are food for humans, mm-hmm. so that could be one of the ways that it's entering us. Um, and we've also looked, I mean, not me specifically, but the royal we, the scientists we, have looked at um, compounds in those plastics that might leach out in into um, biological organisms that could then cause problems, say, with hormone balance or other sort of Mm. toxic implications. Um, But what I tend to think more about is, you know, human health is important to me, but right now it doesn't seem that microplastics are having a giant impact on human health. That might change as we learn more in future, but what concerns me a little bit more, you know, being a Georgian, is that our economy is really heavily based on um, production of biological products, both you know on land we've got lots of agriculture, but on the coast we have a ton of, of fisheries. You know, jellyfish are a huge fishery for mm-hmm. us, but then also on the on the benthos, we love our oysters, we love our shrimp. You know, we make a lot of money exporting those to different places. Um, and oysters are filter feeders, so they're hanging out on the bottom of the ocean and or on, on the bottom of the coast, and they are filtering all of the water through themselves and filtering out the food they want to eat. And in there is going to be a lot of microplastics that can get you know caught and consumed. And then same thing with shrimp, they're going to be detrital feeders and they're going to be eating a lot of microplastics along with their normal diet. And so if it turns out that microplastics have a detrimental impact, on either the adult forms of these organisms or on the larval forms of these organisms, which start their life in the plankton, start their life as zooplankton, that could have knock-on impacts for our fisheries, which has big impacts on our economy. So I think really the the hot sort of research topic for Georgia going forward with microplastics is going to be to mitigate these impacts on our fisheries. So correct me if I'm wrong, I thought that I read somewhere or heard somewhere that like in wastewater treatments, they were putting like, I don't know, little balls that would attract the microplastics in, is that still happening? Or is it just basically they're putting a big <laughs> a big pantyhose over the wastewater treatment to try to get this stuff out? What What's happening to try to it really, this? It really depends where you're looking and what wastewater facility you're at. There are different methods that you can use to treat the water. But the most common method is going to be just running that water through a series of different filtering processes, both physical and chemical, to try and, like you said, coagulate different compounds together so that they don't move on to the next step, or to just physically sieve them through smaller and smaller mm-hmm. materials as you go. Um, what I'd really like to do next in, in my research is to go to these wastewater outfalls and take samples directly right there and see exactly what's getting through in terms of microplastics, see exactly what's coming out. Um, what we've determined so far from the work that myself and colleagues have done down on the Satilla is that there is a correlation between the abundance of these microfibers and salinity. Um, salinity is a measure mm-hmm. of the amount of salt in the water. So what we see is that the lower the salinity, or the fresher the water, the higher the number of fibers. And so we know that the fibers are coming down the river. Um, We also see there is a flux 
after uh, rainfall events, which tells us some of the fibers are coming washed right off the land as well. And so to add to this sort of analysis, we want to go far enough upriver that we're ahead of any sort of wastewater outfall, then down below the wastewater outfall and compare there, and then measure the wastewater outfall directly and see if that is one of the major contributors. Hmm. Is salinity affecting the phytoplankton? Salinity well? does affect phytoplankton. So just like there are fish that can live in lakes but not in oceans, there are phytoplankton that can live in lakes but not in oceans and vice versa. So you hmm. see different species of phytoplankton depending on where you are along our coast or up our rivers. We have plankton that love salt water and only salt water, plankton that love fresh water and only fresh water, and then brackish plankton that can deal with some mixture between the two. Yeah, but as we're, as we're noticing that the water's becoming fresher, it's probably, I would assume, reducing the phytoplankton that like the salt water in that water? Yeah, so along our coast, we've got, you know, the tides are gonna be the big yeah. contributor there. So the, the ocean plankton are happy right out on the coastal side, the river plankton are happy further up river, and then when the tide comes in, some of the ocean plankton come in with the tide. When the tide goes out, some of the river plankton come out with the river. But that sort of area of flux is used to a lot of change. The plankton that can't handle change are gonna be way up river or way out off coast. So I like this idea about uh, there's an economic implication. Mm -hmm. And when we think about biology and oceanography and we, we think about the, the health of the waterway and the health of the environment, and oftentimes we think about that as being separate from the economy or in direct opposition to economic production. But what you're saying here is if we can reduce uh, the microplastics that are coming into our oceans, that could actually be a, a give a boost to our economy here in Georgia. Yes, and we're also seeing other threats to our fisheries just in terms of other aspects of climate change, like warming waters and more acidified waters are harsher to the development of these organisms that are um, so important to us economically. And so if we can you know, lighten the load on the microplastic side or you know, fund more science on the acidification or the warming side, then we can really protect these fisheries that are so important to the ability for our state to continue to thrive. I love that idea. Yeah, no, it's hard to imagine, you know, the state economy, everything has to be there in that ecosystem down to this phytoplankton. And mm -hmm. like you had said earlier, the microplastics may not be affecting them as much, but once it goes up, just one level removed from them to the zooplankton, that starts to really impact. And so have we noticed an impact on them as far as like, other than just getting eaten by bigger fish and we're noticing the microplastics in them or the microplastics harming them directly? That's where we're, uh, again, the royal we, that's where we're still kind of looking at the direct impacts of the plastics on these organisms. We definitely know that larger plastics have an impact up the food chain, like, you know, um, seabirds found on shore or beached whales. If you look in their stomachs, you'll often find you know, large pieces of plastics that they've, they've eaten. Further down um, the food chain, that research is still pretty new. So looking at the microplastics in the zooplankton stomachs or the microplastics accumulating in the tissues of the fish, that's still ongoing. So what else can we do besides putting a filter on our washing machines? Um, what small changes could we do directly that could make a difference? Because I'm, I'm guessing that the difference, 
me putting a filter on my washing machine will make a difference, but it's not going to impact a huge difference. This has got to be like a fundamental change in, in behavior. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think, you know, the long-term solution is top-down. You know, we need change from the top to, to help control this. So um, production lines starting to use less plastic uh, would be great. But, you know, from the individual level, little things that we can do right now would be, you know, putting pressure on those corporations to use less plastic fibers, so buying clothes that are made of more organic material or just not you know, buying into the fast fashion aspect of clothes, you know, buying once and then throwing away. Um, or we can, just when we see plastic outside, pick it up and throw it out because although fibers are the big contributor that I'm seeing along the Georgia coast, shards also accumulate from the breakdown of plastics that end up in the ocean washing off the beach or whatever. So not littering yourself and then picking up litter that you do see can also be a big help. Okay. So you know, the, the title of this podcast is Who Cares? And so I'd like you to speak to uh, why people should care about this uh, and maybe speak to what the ultimate goal of this line of, of research is. That's, yeah, a great point. And I think, you know, for me, I care because I come at this from, I remember the very first time I looked down a microscope when I was, you know, 19 years old in a biology lab and I saw these plankton and I fell in love. And then coming to Georgia and seeing them living in such a different, condition in terms of the mix with all the plastics. I know I keep talking about Georgia because we're in Georgia. It's not just a Georgia problem. This is like coastal everywhere in the world, but Georgia is my perspective that I have. Um, so I care because it, I'm so directly connected to it. Um, and one thing I do in, in my classes that I teach here is I talk to my students in my interbio classes about why they should care about these things or about why they do care about these things. And some of my students walking in the door are already ecocentric, like they already care about the whole planet and they care for the sake of maintaining the planet, which is a great motivation and that you know works for a lot of people. But I also have students at the other end of the spectrum who are uh, anthrocentric and they're very people focused and you know they think the planet is here for our own resources and, and access. And even if you're coming at it from that perspective, these this work still matters to you because if you want to have access to the resources that you need, like being able to enjoy the coast or the food from our coast, then we need to control from the bottom up all of these impacts that we're seeing from the plastics getting in to the water. So regardless of whether you're coming at it from a save the planet angle or a save my meal and my economy angle, it all comes together. Well, I'm even thinking, you know, even if you're a vegetarian and so you're not going to be eating fish necessarily, it's still something you should worry about because these microplastics are not just landing in these phytoplankton and going on up the food chain. They're everywhere. They're they're in our ground. We're ingesting them as well, whether we know it or not. They're everywhere. And they're, I mean, they're also even in our drinking water. So like there was some research done a couple years ago of uh, plastics being found in the bottles of, you know, store-bought bottled water. Um, whether that came from, you know, unscrewing the cap and little bits break off or whether that came from the pipeline of production. I don't remember the specifics, but like even if you're a vegetarian, there are microplastics all around you in your life, in your body. And so, you know, reducing those is, I think, important for anybody. Well, it seems really easy to say just buy the natural fibers and things, but that's a cost-effective thing as well because our microfibers, our natural fibers are much more expensive than our mass-produced things that a lot of the world needs to be able to access. Exactly, yeah, and that's why I do sort of lend, uh, lean more towards a top-down approach than an individual approach because it's not a choice that every single person can make. Like, every single person can choose not to litter. Every single person can choose to pick up trash when they see it, but not every person can afford or wants to buy more expensive clothing that's made of organic fibers that's going to last longer. But if we can put pressure on corporations to use less plastic in production, both in food packaging and also in clothing, then that can benefit everybody. 
Yeah. I find it fascinating that, that these microplastics, things that are so small we can barely see them and probably a lot of them we can't see at all, can have such an impact mm-hmm. on not just the environment, uh, but also the economy and people, which right. uh, is, is a key concern here as well. Yeah. And so this work in trying to control microplastics and in combination with the uh, phytoplankton that are so critical to uh, depleting carbon dioxide and, and bringing ox- oxygen uh, into our world, that uh, those three things come together, the environment, the economy, and people. Uh, benefit from this. And, and I think also, you know, if, if we have any listeners who are thinking, okay, it really, there really can't be that many, or they're so small, they mustn't matter. I really encourage you to just pop a nylon stocking on the outflow of your washer, check it after a month, and have a look at how much each load of laundry is producing in terms of what we're putting out there. And then get a feel for, you know, every household in America, every load of laundry that they're doing, every wastewater outflow that's been putting that out into the systems. And it's a really good way, I think, to connect to this issue. Yeah, no, I'm loving that citizen science aspect of it, too. This yeah. is something you can get your kids involved with. Like, mm-hmm. let's see what happens. If we, you know, we're only going to wear natural fibers in this load of laundry and see how many are getting caught, see how many are just normal load of laundry. There's lots of different aspects that you can really get people involved with. And I'm sort of seeing this hashtag of save the phytoplankton. You know? Yeah. So, <laughs> Wonderful. That is really awesome, Liz. Thank you so much for the work you're doing um, and for bringing it to my attention and to Ryan's attention and to our listeners' attention and... We'd love to have you back if you do get to go to the wastewater treatments and, and collect that and see what's happening there at that level. Um, and hopefully I'll see you on the coast one day. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks, Liz. Appreciate Thank it. Thank you Good work. This has been Who Cares? Casual Conversations with Southern Scholars, brought to you by the College of Behavioral and Social Sciences and the College of Education at George Southern University. The opinions expressed here are those of the researchers and the host and not of Georgia Southern University or the University System of Georgia. We would like to give a shout out to Purple Planet for our bumper music. Join us next time for Who Cares? Casual Conversations with Southern Scholars.